The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. This week, we're talking about maximising happiness. How can our government make sure its decisions are made with well-being at the top? I'll be talking to Girol Karajolu, who is the head of the School of Government at Victoria University and one of the architects of the way New Zealand analyses happiness. And I'll also be talking to Susan St. John, who's an economist and associate professor of economics at the University of Auckland's Business School, who has an interesting take on what we should be spending our money on. That's this week and when the facts change. Kia ora, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to When the Facts Change, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with KiwiBank. KiwiBank is committed to supporting New Zealanders' understanding of the economic issues that are shaping their lives and the future of Aotearoa. And don't forget to subscribe so you get our podcast every week. This week on When the Facts Change, I want to talk about how we spend government money to maximise happiness. Seems of a sort of vague, strange thing to do. But actually, this is something our government is trying to do, or it says it's trying to do, and in my view, isn't. I want to start with an example of a surprise I had a couple of years ago. I got lost coming from the Auckland airport into the Auckland CBD. I fly a lot to Auckland from Wellington and usually I jump on the motorway, but for some reason (laughs) I turned off the wrong one and ended up in Mangere, in a suburb that I'd heard of but hadn't spent a lot of time in. And I'm curious about housing. That's me. I love talking about housing and thinking about housing and looking at the different houses. So I just kept driving and was shocked to find that many of the houses had three or four cars parked outside. And many of those houses had these cabins that you can take onto a site, put in the front yard, drape a very long extension cord from the house into these cabins. Or many of the houses had lean-tos, effectively carports that had been covered in, often with tarpaulins or with cardboard. And it struck me this wasn't just one or two houses. A lot of the houses were like this in Mangere. This is a common thing to see in some of the suburbs around Auckland in particular, but in a lot of small towns as well. And it struck me as I was driving around and seeing some of the kids coming home from school that this was a real struggle because I know that a lot of those kids are bouncing from school to school. If they're living in private rentals, they are being kicked out, bouncing from one private rental to the next. And it means that in some schools in Mangere, more than 50% of the kids are essentially not spending an entire year in one school. It's called transience. And it's a common problem. It's part of the symptoms of child poverty in New Zealand, where we have a housing crisis, in many cases, a health crisis. And These are crises that cost New Zealand in lots of different ways for a long period. 
And it's a debate we're having where, for example, the Welfare Advisory Group that the government set up in 2018 recommended that the government increase spending on benefits by $5 billion a year. This would be the most immediate and effective way to reduce child poverty, simply giving people cash. And it actually works. And we've seen that happen in the United States where Joe Biden, and to be fair, Donald Trump, in three large cash payments, dramatically reduced child poverty in America. And that's happening right now. I've specifically asked the Prime Minister many times why the government hasn't followed the recommendations of the Welfare Advisory Group. She says that she's concerned that if she did, it would be reversed by the National Party. So it occurred to me as I sat there in my chair in the Beehive Theatrette, why is she saying this? Why has she not been advised by others on the long-term costs and benefits of spending, for example, that $5 billion extra a year on benefits or spending it somewhere else. And it forces us to think, why do we spend more than $2 billion a year giving money to a bunch of fund managers who will then invest it in companies overseas, some companies in New Zealand, but not that many, with the aim over the next 40 or 50 years of building that money up and then withdrawing it to help pay for pensions from 2060 onwards. What if we knew what the costs and the benefits of spending that $2.2 billion and reducing child poverty would be? Let's say building new secure houses, ones with decent public transport, ones where the kids weren't often having to go to hospital with skin infections or chest infections, or maybe once they get into their teens, not having mental health issues. Those are the sorts of analyses that aren't being done in government at the moment, despite all the talk about well-being analysis. And that's where Treasury and Gerald Caradolu and Susan St. John have started to look at how do you work out the best way to spend your money to maximise not just GDP, but the health and the happiness of your population, not just now, but for the long term. And then you can start to widen that analysis out to things like the environment, uh, the quality of water how connected we feel to our communities, how happy we are generally. This is the story of happiness here on When the Facts Change. Welcome to Giro Karajolu from Victoria University. Welcome into the studio here in Parliament. Firstly, Giro, could you tell us a little bit more about how a wellbeing approach is different to what we had before? First of all, thank you for having me. The uh, distinctive feature of the well-being approach to public policy is that it recognizes that well-being is multidimensional, and that's based on the uh, years of work done by the OECD that shows that people care absolutely about their income and employment and material comforts but they also care about environmental quality, about their safety and security, about work-life balance and so on. So it is multidimensional. And the fundamental point is um, that those other things, in addition to income that people care about, cannot all be purchased with income. Uh, For example, environmental quality, for example, better relationships, work-life balance. So we have to be working on multiple dimensions to improve people's well-being. And the second point is, unless we look after those other things that people care about, then we can do serious damage in the long run. So it has a multidimensionality as well as a multi-generational aspect. 
if we do not look after our environment or about income inequality, wealth inequality, it can cause social incohesion, it can cause environmental damage, so we are doing damage to the well-being of future generations. That's the fundamental distinction. So in the past, we would have maybe targeted GDP in the next couple of years and ignored some of the long-term impacts of making our water dirty or making our air dirty or making a particular part of the population unhealthy and also over a much longer period. My impression of the way Western societies, democratic ones often, have made decisions is that they look at what's in front of them in the next 12 to 18 months because they don't think they can think longer than that and they work out what choices will bring them the highest nominal GDP. How would using a well-being approach change the way a government, let's say the New Zealand government, makes some of these decisions about how it taxes and spends and invests? If you take housing as an example, and let's agree that housing is the business of government because it has all these social and other benefits, then uh, when you're dealing with uh, whether and how to invest in housing, you're uh, talking about what kinds of housing would be appropriate, how can we increase the supply of housing, but to the point, uh, how can we do it in a way that doesn't do damage to the environment, and how can we do it in a way that housing is created where people can continue living their lives in a community that they want to be part of. This is the fundamental difference so if the Infrastructure Commission were called the Well-Being Commission, whenever they were looking at any major project, whether it's social, economic, or uh, environmental infrastructure, they would run the wider lens and prioritize those investments that improve whatever we are targeting, housing again, or health, without doing any damage to the other aspects, such as inequality, such as social cohesion, such as environmental quality. That is the big, big idea. So one of the useful things about having a currency and a, a measure, a dollar, is that you can use it to work out the impacts of a particular decision. So if I spend a dollar here, I'm going to get an extra $1.3 in um, output or product, and I might have some extra costs here of 0.3 of a dollar. So how do you pull together all of these effects of a decision into a single unit of currency, if you like, for a government to make a decision. Because once you have different apples and oranges, um, it's pretty easy for someone to say, well, I prefer apples. <laughs> I'm not interested in your oranges. The first point I want to make is that although reducing all of that into a single measure is one of the options, a complementary, not a substitute option, is also to see the full picture. So the social well-being agency of the government today uh, does cost-benefit analysis, referred to CBAX, which actually looks at every potential investment, social and other investment, and looks at the impacts of those across those 11 domains that the OECD has highlighted, such as income, employment, environment, and so on. And by way of example, they did some work on social housing, and they wanted to find out what is the impact of social housing. Instead of simply looking at the fiscal side of it, 
They said, uh, what are the impacts on those 11 domains, social connections, security, income, and so on? And they do it through surveys. And so you get a map of the impact of people with and without social housing, and you can compare on those domains which are going to be beneficial and which are not. So that gives you a picture. The trouble is, if you had 50 policies that you needed to choose from, and you were given 50 of those charts that are all over the place, the minister involved would kick you out of their office. So you're absolutely right. There needs to be an attempt to try to see whether we can pull it all together into single matrices. One of them, which is frontier work, which is being done around the world, and some of us are advocating in New Zealand as well, is so-called the subject of well-being approach. In other words, we say, if people care about all these things, surely in answering a question whether they would like um, dental surgery or a streetlight or a school, they will take into all that into account in saying that uh, one or the other gives me higher subjective well-being, and we can generate data on that basis, and this is not esoteric, it's being done. And then you rank um, the options on the basis of the highest rated per dollar spent on that. That becomes a cost-benefit analysis. The currency then is subjective well-being rather than uh, simply uh, dollars. Can you trust, though, how people feel is accurate? In, in the same way that, for example, in courts, people challenge people's memories. Can you say that if I feel fantastic about my dental surgery being done right now because I've got an awful lot of pain in one tooth right now, but maybe in the long run I'm better off having the, the street light because I'm not going to fall over and break my hip four times? The empirical evidence appears to show that if you do this kind of analysis across time and across many, many people and using averages and, also, and so on, they seem to be more reliable than when you're asking to individuals. The other, however, point I want to make is the one I suggested in a book that I just did. A complementary approach would be if I was the infrastructure commission, I would look at all the proposals that are in front of me and rank them according to those that are effective, subject to not violating the other things that we desperately care about, social cohesion and environmental quality and uh, income growth. And uh, you divide that by the uh, cost of doing that, and that would be not a substitute, a complementary. So you need to look at it through various lens, but the fundamental point is in doing that, when economists talk about efficiency, they only talk about efficiency in the economic sense. What we are talking about here is efficiency, in other words, not causing any distortions, not only in the context of the economy, but also the environment and society. If I can change people's mind and twist them a little bit to see efficiency in that lens, we are 90% there. And that um, is a really interesting point about uh, particularly taking into account the long-term effects on different domains, so environment or health uh, versus the usual GDP. One of the ideas that has come out over the last decade or so from New Zealand politics and government is this idea of using the actuarial approach. So an actuary is someone who works out the long-term costs and benefits and effectively puts it into balance sheet terms, you know, i.e. your long-term assets have risen or fallen because of this decision and your equity and your debt is changed to a certain level 
And this idea of, for example, when you spend an extra billion dollars on public health, you may say, well, that's actually just a billion dollars I've just spent and I've got no way of measuring that. Well, what if you were to say over a 20-year lifespan, we know that a billion dollars spent making people healthier now means they're not in hospital 15 times over the next 20 years, costing a lot of money, not to mention the you know, the pain and the uh, social disruption and all of the things that go with um, those hospital visits. And you may actually be better off spending the billion dollars now on public health than, say, a billion dollars on a motorway. What I'm curious about is how much of that actuarial approach can be used in your well-being analysis and, and whether it is being used. There is no doubt that the um, actuarial approach has been used and had been used and is the fundamental concept underpinning the social investment approach, which Bill English and his colleagues had introduced into social and other policy. That's precisely it. In other words... Uh, take a certain person from a family with uh, a single mother who has not worked, who is dependent, and so on, and you t- develop profiles, and you say that individuals and children who come from such backgrounds, unless we do anything about it, would have a very high probability of being in trouble, ending in jail, and causing harm, and so on. So if we actually identify those people right now, invest in them, in their mental health, in their education, and so on, then because they will be productive members of society, and will not cause harm, the net-net benefit is positive. That's precisely what the social investment approach was all about and continues to be about. The social well-being approach builds on that and simply through a vehicle called cost-benefit analysis, XCBAX, encourages people to think about, identify all the benefits and costs that are associated with a particular investment, all of them across those 11 domains of the OECD Better Life Index, and quantify as much as you can and monetize as much as you can. But if you cannot, at least qualitatively put it to one side. So it is very much an actuarial approach extended and expanded to include wider indicators and measures of well-being. And as we said before, the current challenge now is can we convert that into a single index so that we can still do cost-benefit analysis. The currency is well-being rather than dollars and cents. I read a few cabinet papers for fun, and I am yet to see that sort of complex, nuanced, broad analysis being provided and advice to ministers. What's your feeling broadly about, you know, how much this is used in government at the moment? Because, you know, if you did a word search for the word well-being in last year's budget, you know, you, it would have been a really big chunk in the Google word cloud. But I sense that it hasn't really filtered through into the actual advice that actual ministers get on actual decisions. When you look at the well-being budget 2019, and you look at table one on page seven, it's uh, ingrained in my memory, you will see a whole range of measures and indicators holding the mirror, shining the light on the kinds of social, environmental, economic challenges that we face. That was the database 
information provided to the government in shaping the prioritization of it. To that extent, it's being used. The question is, would it be the same if there were no talk about well-being? Right now, uh, I think it would be the case that that is simply uh, not making a huge difference. In other words, child well-being and poverty, housing and so on would have been top of mind whether or not we were talking the well-being language. So, so one example of, of a decision that you could apply the well-being approach to and which doesn't seem to have been done is this issue of child welfare spending. Andrew Beecroft, the um, Children's Commissioner, has made a lot of noise about how the government hasn't followed all of the recommendations of the Welfare Advisory Group. And it struck me, if you were looking at the government's decision about whether or not to go ahead and follow that Welfare Advisory Group, for example, putting up benefits in a very simple, you know, just an extra... 100 bucks a week or whatever it is, and you look at the cost of that, which the Welfare Advisory Group said would be about an extra $5 billion a year in in benefits, and then you take into account, let's say we're spending $2 billion a year at the moment on putting money into the New Zealand Super Fund. How could you use the wellbeing analysis to, you know, let's say if you were to weigh off one against the other, uh, on the face of it, spending that money on the welfare incomes and reducing child poverty in a sort of immediate direct way could produce a much better long-term outcome than pumping $2 billion into a super fund, which we know how to measure the likely long-term effect of. We can make an estimate about investment returns and about um, the cost of managing it and how much money it will give us in 2045 to reduce the pension costs. So we've done the long-term stuff on the super fund. We don't seem to have done it on the welfare. And if you were to weigh one against the other, how would you use the wellbeing approach there? The well-being approach is brilliantly positioned to address that issue. In all the modeling work we did in the two books we published on this issue, we identified eradicating poverty complemented by focusing on environmental quality, that pair of focus being not only good across other domains such as income growth, employment growth, equity, and social cohesion and all that, but also very good in an intergenerational sense. So it's not only about child poverty. If we treat poverty in the sense of exclusion, in the sense of not having access to very basic services, health, education, and so on, then housing is a critical example. For example, in uh, Singapore, as far as I know, they have made a social commitment that everybody will have housing. 70% of housing stock is owned by the government, as far as I know. And they have made a commitment that uh, the government, through social housing, will deliver that. Those who can afford it can pay rents, whatever. Uh, those who cannot will live in it. So it's a social decision to eradicate poverty in terms of lack of access. If you do that, plus you complement that with policies that are still good for material prosperity, trying to shift consumption and production towards cleaner technology and generating skilling and jobs that way, that combination of policies does the welfare piece 
which is looking after people today, as well as the well-being piece, in other words, looking across generations as well. This is a social decision. And in the book, we repeatedly made the point that it's a leadership issue. It's for parliament to take the leadership to tell that narrative to all of New Zealand and saying we really need to address this and treat it as a pandemic. And if we address and give it the same urgency that we gave to COVID-19, this is precisely your point. Not only will we address our welfare issues, but also will address the long-term well-being issues. And by the way, to flip the table, if you don't do that, then we will start creating social incohesion. We will create serious inequity, democratic stresses, as we have seen around the world, and in the long run, it will implode. So that is the way we should be thinking about it. But it requires a genuine commitment, intergenerational commitment, by the government, not only the government, the parliament, unanimously to say, this is not acceptable, this is what we need to do, just like we did with COVID-19. If we can get to that point, then I believe rich and poor will support this. There is no doubt in my mind, but somebody has to tell this narrative properly to the New Zealand public. That's a fascinating uh, point and brings me to the area of psychology, if you like, of decision-making and the bizarre outcomes you sometimes get, apparently not sensible outcomes in the long run, because humans have some parts of their brain or things in their brain that mean, for example, they put a value that's much higher on losing a certain amount of thing than gaining a certain amount of thing. And they also have a, they put a much higher value on the immediate impact or pain or joy of uh, the next thing, when if they'd looked at the long-term impact of that decision, they would have said, okay, collectively, that, that would be the wrong decision to make. But there's something in our brains which forces us to make the wrong decision. Could, could you say that, you know, that long-term approach, that looking at, I suppose you could call it soft measures, is really difficult in a political world where the intense pain or pleasure or direct impact of a policy on a particular group of voters is going to outweigh what would be the sensible decision in the long run for everyone. This is precisely one of the distinctive roles, and one has to always ask, what's the distinctive role of government in our lives? Where do we want them to be involved and where not? This is one of the distinctive roles of ideally government and governance that they are able to see beyond the urges of human beings about the short term and make the right long-term decisions. And the issues very much center around um, environmental quality, about making sure we have equitable access to all the basic services and giving everyone a voice and making sure they are engaged and involved because otherwise you have people living separate lives and not getting engaged with our political processes. It's the role of governance and government to see beyond the immediate urges of human being, just like we did with the COVID-19, when we said, we understand there is short-term pain, but stay with us, because if we do this right, then the long-term gains will far outweigh the short-term losses. And by the way, in the meantime, we will be sharing the 
cost of it, and we spent money on giving people income and everything else, uh, and, and society at large accepted that. So that's what I'm talking about. But you're right. Our instinct is short-termism. And uh, when you have government and leadership able to paint a picture of what the collective long-term impacts of a decision has, as, you know, we have an example, a very recent high-profile example of the de- pandemic decision we took, you know, a year ago, which turned out to be the right decision, even though the short-term pain was there. If you were looking now broadly around at the policy decisions being made by this government or of both political flavours, where are the most obvious bad decisions, if you like, that are there and still in place uh, when you applied a you know well-being lens to it? What are the sort of outliers that say, actually, if you applied a well-being analysis to that, you wouldn't do that particular thing or you'd do something else? First of all, uh, it's partly about process. And one of the thing is it's very much a center-driven government becoming more and more centralized. And the well-being approach, a core proposition of the well-being approach is about a very inclusive process involving the stakeholders in decisions being made. So that's one weakness. In fact, local government and various other acts that are being reviewed is taking us in the opposite direction. That to me is dangerous. Secondly, uh, in terms of implementation. So we talk about housing, absolutely but we don't deliver. We cannot deliver because we don't make the commitment as a society. Housing is for us all. It's a social matter. Social housing is an option. Let's pull our sleeves up and make sure that happens. And so these are the kinds of things that worry me a lot. And in New Zealand, we've got this broad framework of legislation which governs how our government operates, one of them being the Public Finance Act is a core thing that's been set up over the last 30 years which gives direction to governments about those long-term decisions. One of the core parts of it says the government must look to stabilise debt and bring it down to a stable, prudent level. It's the guts of what it suggests. Can you run a proper wellbeing analysis-led society or government when you have that sort of very financial focus um, DNA in your legislation that governs how government operates? It is totally wrong in the case of a crisis like COVID-19 or other crises like wars and other matters to uh, get obsessed about debt and debt targets and debt levels. Debt is a, a one of the instruments that we use to pay for long-term investments. In the very long run, of course, we cannot have an exploding debt level. But in terms of the calculus of what we do and how we do it, starting with debt levels and debt percentages is a very wrong idea. And in fact, to be fair, we have put that to one side around the world as well. We are constantly saying now, let's deal with the immediate income and other issues and see how we finance this. Do we finance it by, by getting people to borrow for themselves, by borrowing, uh, by the government borrowing, by taxing and so on and so forth? And we are dealing with it that way. We are not that worried about debt now. The question is in the long run, should we worry about that? Absolutely yes, but this is not the time to worry about it. When inflation pressures start rising and interest rates start rising, then that gives me an indication that debt levels are getting serious, and that's when we start worrying about it. But for the time being, our focus should be absolutely 
on creating well-being by looking after people's income, their housing, their health, and making sure that that investment is being made. And given current very low interest rates, there is a very strong case for the public sector to undertake those investments without worrying about that for the time being. In time, we can worry about that. Today is not the time. The austerity and all that kind of thing should not be top of mind in the current environment. That's a fantastic point to end on. Girol Karajolu from Victoria University, uh, who has worked as the Chief Economist of the Treasury and was one of the group of people behind the Living Standards Report, and is the author of a great book about wellbeing called Love You. It's a cracking read. Uh, maybe I need to get out more, but I found it really fascinating. Thank you very much. Girol Karajolu from Victoria University. We'll be right back with Susan St. John to look at a real-world example of how we could do it differently. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted, they've tightened monetary policy, they've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is, is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Well, it's time now to talk to Susan St. John, an economist at Auckland University who is also an activist for the Child Poverty Action Group. Welcome. I want to ask, are we thinking properly about the long-term costs of not spending that money to reduce child poverty? Well, we're certainly not thinking of that long-term cost. When you think about the wealth of the country is really its people, and we're not investing in the young, we're not investing adequately in women, and we're expecting that in the future these people are going to be productive contributors to society. It's just not going to happen. It's extremely short-sighted. So what are the long-term liabilities if we don't invest in reducing child poverty? 
Well, we're seeing them already. We're already seeing the growth in mental health issues. We see all the problems in the school sector, problems in the hospitals with third world diseases. All of these things are negative social indicators, which will get worse unless we seriously address what is a growing poverty problem. Well, now the Prime Minister says we can't actually afford to spend all that money because we need to keep some room for a rainy day. What do you say to that? Well, I think that, unfortunately, there's been a lot of capture by the neoliberal thinking, and we can't escape from that balance sheet type approach that gets very scared about figures on net debt and worries about deficits, when we should be focusing on the real issues and the real people. If we can't get the fundamentals right, it doesn't matter whether our books are sound or not. Pointing to the fact that something's going to cost money is just an indication of the degree that the neoliberal framework has captured our decision-makers and our politicians on both sides. Now, there, there is an exception to that rule, though, about thinking for the long term. If we invest in the long term, build up a big pile of money, doesn't that solve our problem? Well, that's, that's actually an illustration of exactly the problem. It's this capture uh, the neoliberal thinking that says you've got to have a big fund and you've got to protect it and keep it for the future. And so some of these things get set up, like the New Zealand Super Fund, and they're never scrutinised. And people have got all sorts of misunderstandings about what that particular fund is actually going to achieve. So if you look at Treasury's projections, by the end of the century, we're going to have a huge treasure chest of money, we might not have a planet. We, we might have incredible issues that should have been dealt with right back in the 1920s. So we know then there are alternative ways of spending that money. So how could we analyse the costs and the benefits of, say, for example, pumping that money in to reduce child poverty? Well, in the neoliberal framework, children and their families, low-income families, are invisible. It's all about paid work. Paid work is the fundamental value of the neoliberal system. And as long as we have paid work at the centre, we're going to get the kind of policy trade-offs that we now see. So spending on things like the America's Cup is more important than dealing with 170,000 children underneath the lowest of the low poverty lines. Sometimes when I do Round the Bays, that um, Auckland fun run, I look at the 30,000, 40,000 people and you think, you know, four or five times that number are the number of children trying to exist in households under 40% of the, of the after-housing costs line. Right back in 2007, the Ministry of Social Development found that there were people under that line and there was shock and horror and they produced a paper which was called something like Pockets of, of Unacceptable Hardship. It was quickly pulled off the internet and the, the government tried to suppress it. It did eventually re-emerge. And since that time, we've heard very little about the concern for those families found under that line. And when we look at the impact of things like the families package, it's had virtually no impact 
on the number of children under that line over time. And what we can expect with the COVID experience is that there are actually more than 170,000 children now in that situation because the data I'm quoting there is two years out of date. So we know that we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on the New Zealand Superfund. What if we were to do that differently? How could we actually reduce some of those costs associated with long-term child poverty, perhaps increase productivity? You know, hundreds of millions of dollars. What would you do with that money to get the biggest bang for your buck? Well, well, first of all, of course, the amount of money going into the New Zealand Super Fund is actually $2 billion a year. So it's a considerable amount more than the half a billion you're giving me to play with here. But you're right. I mean, if we used that money to invest today in the social issues that are all around us, then the payoff will be apparent. Whereas what are we looking at in terms of that investment for the future? All it is is a trickle going to come out in 2050 it isn't going to pay for the costs of an ageing population at all. So what would I do with half a billion dollars? The most cost-effective thing that the government could do with that money is to fix working for families. And by doing the obvious, which is to pay the full package to all low-income families instead of excluding a good proportion from quite a major part of working for families. That policy would cost maybe half a billion dollars per annum, but it would deliver money into those families under the 40% line and would have an immediate impact. It would not go way up the income scale. It would only go to those that miss out currently. And of course, the other thing to do with working for families is to properly index it. We haven't got time to discuss the way it's indexed, but it's poorly indexed. We look at what we do for the old, wage-linked, and we don't have a really bad poverty problem amongst the old. We do exceptionally well for those over 65. Um, And now we're linking the benefits themselves to wages. Why don't we do the same for the payment for children, which is the working for families? So why haven't we had those reforms to working for families or the increase in benefits that the Welfare Advisory Group suggested? The discrimination that's been built into working for families is embedded in the Labour Party thinking. It's about creating a gap between those in work and those that are not in work. Or they might be in work, but they might just have a part benefit, and that's a bad thing. So their children should be excluded as well. And once again, that illustrates that primacy of paid work, independence from the state, that's been really endemic in the thinking. And that's why we haven't got change, because there's people in Labour who still believe that. We've got to create a gap. Unfortunately, the gap has been created by creating poverty. So poverty is the work incentive. And of course, that's extremely cruel when families simply cannot work. A sole parent looking after three young children or someone with a disabled child or where there's sickness or people have been made redundant or COVID-type illnesses have thrown them out of work. These are not situations where people need an incentive to get back to work. 
Now, we know the US government is actually just giving cash payments to people. Over the last year, more than $10,000 per family. And the research shows that will actually reduce child poverty by more than 50% in one fell swoop. Why don't we just do something similar here? Just give cash payments to people on low incomes. Yeah, well, I I think it's good to separate the benefits and say, well, look, they're payments for adults. And then the working for families is the way in which we acknowledge the extra costs of having children. And of course, when we look at the benefits, they're undercooked. They're certainly not adequate to live on for a single person without children, let alone couples with children. So in terms of dealing with child poverty, it is family poverty that has to be dealt with. And so it's not just about working for families, payments, important as that is. It is about how well the adults are supported as well. And we've got a dreadful, dreadful welfare system. For example, if you're a couple, then you get a joint benefit that is stringently income tested against the joint position. And so you know, many people miss out just because their partner earns too much money. That kind of thing needs absolute reform. We've got the Welfare Expert Advisory Group report. We are still waiting to see what the government is going to do with that. It's just not fast enough. Tiny incremental change is not going to make a difference. So we've seen elsewhere the benefits you get when you give cash to people on lower incomes. Why haven't we seen that sort of advice about the long-term benefits and reduced costs from our own advisors to the government about, for example, using that $2 billion for the super fund and using it to reduce child poverty? I don't know the answer to that question, but when I look at the budget policy statement, which is supposed to embody the government's thinking about the coming budget, and you see the false rhetoric around well-being. I think they talk about child poverty in terms of it would be nice if each child had a safe, dry house to live in. And that's the extent of that analysis. So as far as the well-being approach goes, I just don't see any substance to it yet. If you were the head of Treasury, what sort of analysis should it do? What sort of advice could it give to the government? How could it do a proper job? Well, along the lines of what you suggested in the previous question, do analyse what they're putting into some of these untargeted programmes, look at what they're putting into the New Zealand Superfund, all those things, and don't just come up with policies on an ad hoc basis. Make sure they're properly scrutinised for their true value. I think of, for example, what the government did for the winter energy payment for superannuitants doubled the winter energy payment, which was extraordinarily unnecessarily expensive. At the same time, they didn't deal with the crying need for, you know, all the things they could be doing for low-income families. So you're right, it just needs a much better framework for analysing budgetary decisions. So what sort of research is there around about the effectiveness of that money spent on the New Zealand Superfund? I don't know of any... There's a lot of very technical papers that describe how we work out on a formula how much should go into the fund every year. And there's a huge um, battery of people who are employed to manage the money and to make as much money as possible. But I don't see 
any evidence that the questions are being asked, even by National, who, as you remember, did suspend contributions once, questions asked about what is the fund for? Why are we doing this? It doesn't guarantee one single thing about New Zealand super, not the rate it's paid at, not its indexation, not its universality, not the age at which it's delivered, none of that. And so why, why are people so convinced that the fund is going to protect them? The ageing population is going to have serious consequences for future budgets. It's already having serious consequences. And we're nowhere near prepared to talk about that. Fantastic to talk about wellbeing analysis and looking at the real-world example of trading off New Zealand Superfund contribution, $2 billion, and using it to reduce child poverty. Well, thank you to Susan St John from the Auckland University and who's an activist with the Child Poverty Action Group and Gerald Karajolu from Victoria University for contributing today. And thanks also to KiwiBank, who we're producing this podcast with in partnership with the spin-off. And remember to subscribe so you can get each edition fresh weekly when the facts change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.